This is the O'Reilly Hardware Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm David Craner. It's never been easier to go from idea to digital design to physical product. The new hardware movement is radically changing the way that technology in the world around us is being conceived, built, and connected. This podcast brings you the new generation of hardware creators who work across the boundary between digital and physical. They're designers, engineers, scientists, artists, and business people. For more information on the new hardware movement and the resources you need to become a full-stack hardware creator, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware. And if you'd like to send in a question for us to discuss on the show, email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com. David Craner and I are here today with no guests. We do this sometimes when there's something sufficiently enthralling to talk about that we don't need a third person casting in to uh, to discuss it. And the thing that, that we're interested in today is that uh, there's kind of a thunderclap leak um, around the, the end of February in the announcement of the new Raspberry Pi 3. This yeah, is the successor to the Raspberry Pi 2, as you could imagine. Yes, it's, it's, like, it's, it's like the two, but with one more. Um, exactly. They yes, they they leaked. There was a well, I wouldn't exactly call it a leak. Basically, um, some people noticed over the weekend that there were FCC filings from Raspberry Pi um, describing a new Raspberry Pi, and everyone got very excited um, because this version um, includes Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and is much faster. And then they they uh, released it yesterday. And so uh, David and I have started to get into an, an interesting conversation, which we've had before about whether the Raspberry Pi is an important thing. For the community that we talk to, and here, I mean, we're talking about the kinds of people who, uh, you know, went to the Solid Conference, the kinds of people who uh, buy O'Reilly books and, and videos about hardware development, people who are doing experimental stuff that's that's real. It's it's uh, it goes beyond the hobbyist level stuff. Yeah. So I mean, basically, the, the Raspberry Pi is obviously a very good and worthwhile tool for prototyping and education. Um, and lots of people are very excited about it. But, you know, around the Solid Conference and, and around our O'Reilly Hardware Channel efforts are kind of aimed more towards production level stuff. You know, how do you how do you design products that, that can be both compelling and well-designed and designed independently, but also produced in scale? And so this brings up interesting topics of discussion relating to the Raspberry Pi. It's a great prototyping tool, but I personally don't use it for very many of my designs because I like to make integrated things. And if I make something with a Raspberry Pi and want to integrate that electronics further, it's very difficult for me to get the, the chips from Broadcom because they won't pick up the phone unless you want to order you know, tens or th hundreds of thousands of units every year. But then uh, I, I always come back and say, but this, this seems kind of uh, classically disruptive. In fact, if you, if you look back at the early adoption of the personal computer, um, you know, the, the people who started using PCs during the mainframe era were uh, people who weren't already using mainframes. The people using mainframes were like, oh, screw these PCs. I'm a professional and I need a mainframe to do my thing. Meanwhile, people who were willing to experiment with PCs went out and found new applications that weren't yet served by mainframes and, and started to, to apply their work there. So this strikes me as kind of a, an, an analog. You have serious embedded systems, uh, things that you can take apart and rebuild from their modules, things that you can you know build on your own independently. But I think the Raspberry Pi is really like adequate for a really huge percentage of plausible use cases for embedded systems. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think so too. I mean, I think that single board computers are 
really useful for a lot of stuff. I mean, I mean, as as we know, the Raspberry Pi is not the very is not the first single board computers. I mean, there have been uh, Gumsticks, for example, is one that's been available for for more than ten years at this point. Um, and there are, there are lots of other ones. And the Raspberry Pi, I think, is really coming into the public perception, and lots of people are are using it for lots of things, and that's creating lots of institutional knowledge that's going towards designing lots of products. Um, and I think that that's a very you know that's that that's the unique approach that the Raspberry Pi community has taken is that there is so much support and you know so many software examples, so many drivers. You know, Adafruit supports the Raspberry Pi um, a whole lot, and so you know if you want to make a connected LCD screen that does something when your doorbell rings and hooks up to some kind of other IoT application, you can actually do that without having to learn a PhD's worth of of skill in various different engineering disciplines. I mean, my point is basically just a, it, it's a bummer that at the end of the day, if you build something that's that that's amazing and you want to then build 10,000 of them and sell them to people or give them to people or do whatever, uh, you know, you, you can't just call up Mr. Raspberry Pi and say, I'd like 10,000 boards, please. I mean, you can and and they might give them to you. But if they don't want to, then you're pretty much up a creek because there's really nowhere else to source them from. And when you're designing a hardware product that needs to be made for scale, you know, you need to be able to make sure that you have a really solid supply chain that you can trust. And so then if you get into the thing about, you know, maybe, okay, well, then I don't need Mr. Raspberry Pi. I'll just design it myself around the chips. You can't actually get the components, and then you have to end up redesigning your whole product. But don't you think that there are a lot of applications for uh, Raspberry Pis, for things that you could build on Raspberry Pi, where you're not going very low level into the hardware, where you're basically writing a script that that's uh, similar to a script you would write on an Amazon box. You know, it's some Python. It takes a little data that's coming in through, uh, you know, a radio API or, or, you know, through a sensor API. You're doing a little thing to it. You're sending it up into the network. And and if you have to switch onto a different platform after you've started to write this, you know, it's that's not the end of the world. It's not like you're writing, you know, some sort of crazy analog processor that's silicon dependent. Yeah, but in some ways it would be better to use an FPGA because then you can then you can get the silicon. I mean, I guess if you assume that your user has a Raspberry Pi or some other kind of of low-cost computer, um then you can do it like that. And I mean, n- none of these reasons that I'm talking about are reasons to not use Raspberry Pis for things. I mean, I think they're great. I mean, I think that I guess this discussion that we're having right now reflects a a larger frustration with the current state of the hardware industry and in that, you know, Raspberry the, the technology for making really inexpensive small computers has been around for many years. Um, but the manufacturers haven't decided to do them for whatever reason, because they haven't, you know, why Why would you do something that serves the prototyping and hobbyist market when there's the consumer computer market to, to deal with? And so no one's really turned their attention on doing something like this. And right. what I would like to see is more single board computers and, and things of this nature that are actually open and accessible to redesign and that you that are made from parts that that can be sourced and understood. I mean, one thing that, you know, Bunny's Novena laptop, right? I mean, it's it's Bunny it's based, Huang. Yeah, Bunny Huang's Novena laptop. You know, he he took great pains to make sure that every single chip that's on that thing has an accessible data sheet that you can get to. Um and so I mean that that's a that's a big thing when you're designing something that that wants to be remixed and open sourced. And so I think it'd be nice to see more Computers like this, where the where the open sourceness of it actually extends all the way into the uh, into the silicon itself. I mean, you know, there's 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 Stallman. I mean, Stallman Stallman is is a well known example of of being kind of crazy about this kind of stuff. Stallman talks a lot about free hardware, and as a result, he will only use a laptop that has like the BIOS chip is open source or 
free and open source, or I have my nomenclature wrong. And he only connects it to the internet once a day to to answer emails um, because of hardware limitations. But but you know, is a very strict adherent to this idea of open source. I'm not that legalistic about it. I just think that the network effects of being able to remix hardware you know, begin to amplify themselves a lot when you when you build a strong institutional knowledge, when you build a strong community around things. And we're, we're seeing that happen with the software side of the Raspberry Pi stuff, which is like really amazing. Um, and I just wish that the hardware state of it were further along that continuum. Yeah, I mean, and I think that's, I think it is headed along the same continuum. And, and I think maybe, you know, we kind of opened this discussion as, is the Raspberry Pi a professional's tool or still a hobbyist's tool? And really the the distinction is, is more accurately like, is, is the Raspberry Pi a tool you can scale with or a tool that you can't scale with? And, right. and in either case, you know, it's useful to professionals, to people doing interesting cutting edge stuff in all sorts of ways. And I compare it in that sense to, to you know, software scripting. I think if you, if you look at um, software in terms of the number of lines of code that have been written, you know, all the Python that has ever been written. A tiny handful of it has has gone into products that have scaled really significantly. You know, it's gone into YouTube and Dropbox and and Google. The rest of it is kind of solving little one-off problems that people had and that they knew they could solve with with software. You know, it's some sort of business process thing uh, where uh, you know a file needs to be copied over at a particular time, or it's a web scraping application, or it's an individual's website that you know that they just wanted to 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 have the website do something particular that they couldn't do with other tools. I guess I think of the Raspberry Pi as kind of the hardware equivalent to that. Like the Raspberry Pi is a hardware scripting tool. Um, you know, if you want a, an internet connected webcam off on the edge of some property pointed at a thing, you could buy it out of a box or you could buy a, a small camera and connect it to a Raspberry Pi and put it on a network. And then it would do exactly what you want. And it turns out to be easier if you're knowledgeable about these things than uh, buying the out of the box things sometimes. Just like it's easier to, to write a quick Python program to do the thing that you want rather than downloading a bunch of GUI software that needs to run on a Windows machine, you know, and, and is kind of clunky. Yeah, I mean, that's why they call Arduino programs sketches, right? That's the term of art for an right, Arduino right. program because the whole sketching with hardware thing. Um, yeah. The idea of being able to quickly dash together something. And I guess my main frustration is that is that in these systems you have... You've got the software side of things, and you've got the hardware side of things. I think software development and community and open sourceness and accessibility, you know, is very far ahead of where hardware is in terms of the way that the businesses are structured and the ways that, you know, accessibility is and, and everything like that. With an Arduino, you know, which is not a perfect prototyping tool by any means, but you can get the thing... And then you can deconstruct it like down to the actual physicality of the hardware level. And with things like the Raspberry Pi, I feel it's like if you're used to doing things with open software, but the problem is, is that the computer on your desk is too big or too expensive, so you can't put it into the small thing that you're building. Here's a smaller computer with the same, you know, capabilities and whatever, but we're just going to make it smaller and you can run the same software, but we haven't really advanced the, 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 the openness of the physicality of the hardware itself that much. And I think there's right. only so far that you can go with that. I mean, it is, it's a lot like uh, to go back to those millions of lines of probably billions of lines of Python that have been written uh, to solve little individual problems. Almost none of those are ready to be scaled. It would be disastrous. There's an entire profession of people, DevOps people, uh, who exist to take, you know, beautiful pure code that people yeah. uh, wrote that works in theory and make it and work. Make it into code that, that actually out. works. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, but but this raises an interesting question of what an what a really big open source hardware community would look like. Because the model in software 
is that um, you know in traditional software that you pay for, the software is expensive, and then the expertise is kind of floating around from the vendor. You can call them up and get support. In the open source model, the software is free, but the expertise is really expensive. So you know you're not paying licensing fees for the software itself, but you're paying a lot of consultants to come in and and uh, and install it and run it. The the thing about hardware is that um, you know it, it it functions much more like conventional software because the end user is is paying for the hardware often, and that's when everyone gets paid is when the end user puts down a credit card, you know, and then uh, and then everyone's invoices get satisfied going back up the chain. Um, so yeah, what would a I mean. Maybe maybe the outcome of all of this is that as things move to services and you're not so much paying for the piece of plastic and, and silicon and copper in front of you, something that looks more like the open source software model becomes practical in hardware. Yeah, well, I mean, I think as we move towards more modularized hardware, I mean, yeah, I mean, I think eventually we're going to get there and we're going to have like programmable matter or whatever. I mean, maybe in the shorter term, we'll have more generalized pieces of silicon you know fpgas are really great because you know you you define what you want the the physical and digital attributes of a of your chip to be like and then it actually programs it into the hardware of the fpga and then you can and then you can do it so you can make you know you can you can build applications that that would just not be as good or as efficient in software you know if you need like a massively parallel bus for processing huge amounts of graphic information or doing large matrix transforms or something like that but you're right. not going to stick a full-on GPU into your application. You put an FPGA into it, um, and so I think that I think that there's a lot of lessons to be learned from software modularization. But until we get to the point where the actual hardware technology itself is completely and totally agnostic of what software is running on it, we're going to run into problems like you know where does the hardware come from? I mean, this is one reason why why hardware is harder than software because you actually have to get bits from somewhere oh sorry you have to get atoms from somewhere and put them somewhere else you have to be able to source them and get them and understand them and the business models i think are really outdated i mean one time uh when i was in grad school we got from a sponsor of our lab a big telecom company they were making uh wireless like 3g modules and so we asked them if we could have some to to to, to build some stuff and they said yeah sure and then it took several months to get the things and they were like, okay, well, what do you want? And I'm like, okay, well, do you have a list of the products that you have? They're like, oh, uh, no, we don't really share that information. We'll just send you some stuff. And so then they sent me like a random assortment of 3G modules, which like <laughs> kind of half satisfied my requirement, kind of not. But I don't know. I didn't get to shop for them and beggars can't be choosers. But then I asked them for the data sheet. I was like, can I have the data sheet? And they were like, oh, no, we can't. We can't. We just can't share that. And it's just it's just frustrating. You know, I mean, we always go back to the romance of the Wild West of the South China manufacturing and design ecosystem. I mean, obviously, there I mean, practically speaking, there are a lot of things wrong with that from an IP standpoint, but there's also a lot of things right with it. But mm -hmm. as an engineer, it's just, you know, I just like the idea of like, oh, hey, I want to design a new phone or a new computer motherboard or a new something like that that's similar to this other one, um, but is slightly better and slightly different in this way and build upon someone else's work that has gone before me instead of being compelled by legal documents and NDAs to like completely start from scratch. Um, mm -hmm. I'll just I'll just get a copy of it from my friend or I'll just, you know, call up the supplier and get some get some samples and just start going. And like in the Western land of like, you know, cutting edge hardware electronics development that's just not that do, it just doesn't work like that there's just such a morass of of large company politics that you have to navigate in order to get power into your stuff right it's a bummer i think what i think one thing that might you know help this is that uh, as we've discussed on this podcast before processing power is becoming so cheap and so efficient that we kind of have a surplus of it now 
and consumer expectations are continuing to 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 rise. People want more out of their mobile devices, out of their embedded systems. But eventually, you could imagine arriving in an era when um, you know the very cheapest, probably open hardware can support ninety five percent of use cases, and then you can actually have something like you have in software, where you know MySQL is really, really good database software for almost every application, but for crazy exotic applications, you still have, you know, the commercial database vendors with their ultra efficient databases that you can install. You could, you could imagine something like that coming up with hardware where, you know, cheap open hardware of dubious IP provenance is sufficient for, for most things. And then if you really need to, you can go to Qualcomm or Broadcom and, and hack out a, you know, an agreement for, uh, for processors to put in your flagship mobile phone. Yeah, I mean, so one thing that's interesting about the Raspberry Pi three is that is that they've they've chosen to use the the ESP eighty two sixty six for their Wi Fi chipset. Hmm. That's um, people. A lot of people are using that individually now too, right? Yeah. So that's that is a okay. So for for <laughs> listeners who may not be familiar with the ESP eighty two sixty six, it is a uh, it's a little Wi Fi chip um that's got a microcontroller built into it that's kind of taken the open source hacker and maker community by storm in the past few months because it's actually a very well um highly capable chip it's got a decent amount of processing power and some gpios and and connectivity and it's from a you know not not a huge company in asia um it's not you know not from a broadcom it's not from a a a large well-established semiconductor manufacturer but the chips are accessible and they're very very inexpensive and the open source community really got excited about them a few months ago and just started bashing out lots of tools so there's like an arduino ide that you can you know run arduino code on it now Um, there's many projects which use it and so there's a lot of community support and development and so you see more and more projects again with the network effects thing you know you see more and more people wanting to make a device with wi-fi in it they look up and they see there's lots of documentation and lots of uh people doing projects with this chip. Um, and so then they start doing it and building on each other's work. And so now we're seeing lots of ESP8266 based things. And, you know, I think it's cool that that Raspberry Pi went with this, um, you know, knowing that people in the community are going to want to know how the stuff works and to be able to hack on it down to the hardware level. And so, you know, maybe maybe we're not to the point in the industry yet where there's a fully featured central microprocessor core that's that's beefy enough for these kinds of single board computers that you can get relatively easily. But but at least we're seeing the, the design of the of the hardware going that direction with with what's available. Yeah, and it's easy to forget how far open source software has come just in the last few years once once its advantage became clear to the ecosystem. You know, as as recently as like five years ago, a lot of even the most acclaimed open source libraries were extraordinarily difficult to use. I talk about NumPy a lot as an example of, you know, just a, a terrible onboarding experience back when it was growing, back when you were hearing about it at all the big data conferences, all the scientific computing conferences. And this was a Python library, which required reinstalling your C compiler on your MacBook to uh, to use, which is extraordinarily difficult and, and just a huge barrier. Now it's something where you, you know, download a binary and an installer from uh, from a website and it goes in flawlessly in just the space of a few years. So you know, the open source software movement has has progressed a lot. And now we take it for granted. I, I can imagine that that hardware could progress pretty quickly, though, with a lot of the barriers that you've mentioned. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like, you know, even from like a design perspective, I mean, in, in the in the in the future where there's unlimited hardware that's completely agnostic of what software is being run on it or what supplier it came from, you know, because we are people and we live in physical space, we're still constrained by design requirements. Right. So, I mean, you can just buy, I mean, you can buy a Raspberry Pi now for tens of dollars off the shelf, but if you 
decide that it would you know make a whole lot more sense for the for the beautiful thing that you're building to have the ethernet port be on the opposite edge of the board instead of the board edge that it's currently on you can't just do that I mean, mm-hmm. like, in order to do that, that requires tens of thousands of dollars of like redesign and manufacturing and stuff. And right, so, and right. so, you know, it gets to the point where you you do need to be able to have control over the physicality at, at some point if you're making a product. Yeah, you know, we, we tend to imagine Raspberry Pi as a prototyping tool because it is similar to other you know hardware prototyping tools that that people creating electronics use. But I think you can think of it as an actual production platform as well. I mean, we've we've talked with people who are you know putting Raspberry Pis. In uh, in shipping containers to to track them, um, people who are using them a- as environmental sensors. You know, again, it's in the same way that not all code has to be made ready to deploy at large scale. Not all hardware needs to be custom designed boards down to down to a really low level. Well, that's definitely true as well. Because I mean, I think that there are many cases. I think we we talked about this in the in the pre pop up factory blog post a little bit. And I think that there are many cases of, of interesting products and interesting hardware, which are definitely outside of the realm of hobbyists, hackers, and makers. You know, these are like professional things being used for professional purposes, or, you know, maybe they're just like really sweet, small run products that only a few people want. Um, but right now with the way the economics of manufacturing are, before you get into designing any kind of product, you know, you have to assure yourself that there's a market out there of like tens of thousands of people in order to make all the costs and the time investment make sense. And right. I think that there are many ideas for lots of stuff that, you know, that, that should be able to justify their existence with like 500 installed units or something like that, because it's it's nice to have well-designed things. Um, right. But it's not nice to waste tons of money on things. So, you know, the things like Raspberry Pi and these other single board computers that are that are small enough that you can build into a, a small, you know, I would, I would, like I was saying before, I would be afraid of trying to source tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Raspberry Pis to build into something else. However, you know, for a device that you're only ever going to make a few hundred of, they could be a really good solution that solves you, um, you know, saves you a lot of engineering time. Right. And that is that is what accessibility means. I mean, that that's why Raspberry Pi is exciting for opening up hardware and hardware innovation to all sorts of people who don't have electrical engineering degrees, um, aren't designing their own boards from scratch. You know, people who um, who are, again, the, the hardware equivalent of, of uh, scripters. Yeah, totally. Uh, you ready to do Click Spiral? Yeah. And now we move into Click Spiral, which is our segment where David and I describe things that have been absorbing too much of our time on the internet recently, things that, uh, rabbit holes that we've fallen into on Wikipedia and such. If you have a Click Spiral that you'd like to send to us and that you'd like us to waste our time on, you just email us at hardware at O'Reilly.com and then we'll take a look at it, um, maybe talk about it on a future episode of the podcast. So let's start with David. Uh, what did you have this week for Click Spiral? Uh, this week I was reading Reddit and I ended up finding an interesting article about um, the military victories of ancient Rome being due in part uh, to Caesar's ability to very, very quickly build bridges to, to get across rivers so that people hmm. who were, you know, thought that they were safe due to geographic features would realize that they were not in fact safe and many Romans could be bearing down upon them at, at a moment's <laughs> notice due to their advanced engineering tactics. <laughs> the, uh, the, the human bandwidth of Roman infrastructure allowed uh, large amounts of Romans to, to it's true. be transported. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, so, so then I started looking into um, how do they actually build these things because it's a pretty, I mean, I can't actually think about how I would build a bridge across water that was too deep for me to get into. But then I learned, I'm sure there are many engineers who listen to this podcast who are very well familiar with this subject, but it was new and novel to me, which is the the practice of building caissons. 
um, which is, according to Wikipedia, in geotechnical engineering, a caisson is a watertight retaining structure, for example, used to work on the foundations of a bridge pier for the construction of a concrete dam or for the repair of ships. So basically what this is, is they, they go into the water and then they basically build a little box in the water that goes down to the to the bottom of the water. And then they just pump the water out of it so that people can go mm. in there and work. Um, and some of the more advanced ones, actually, the ones that go really, really deep, um, can be pressurized from the top to really have a positive pressure so that so that water and mud will be kept out. Um, hmm. It sounds like a terrifying place to work, honestly. Yeah, it does. It does. And some of the people who work under these things, probably not during the Roman era, but in the modern era, uh, they have to get depressurized like deep sea scuba divers would, right? Oh, Otherwise, so you don't they get, get the, the bends. bends? Yeah. This was a thing that, uh, that I remember reading about in New York where they were doing some really extreme engineering related to a uh, you know a storm runoff system that involved tunneling really really deep and uh, the these tunnelers who basically you know live 8 hours a day or longer without seeing sunlight deep inside the earth's crust have to sit in decompression chambers on their way up oh weird yeah i usually never think about that in terms of of deep sea diving or something but i guess pressure does go up <laughs> yep yeah and and, and uh Nitrogen is soluble in your blood and and your cells. So yeah, it's pretty scary. So what what do you know? It sounds like you know more about this than I do. What do you know? What the difference between a, a caisson and a coffer dam is? Uh, I think a coffer dam is similar in that it keeps water away from what it is that you want to build. But but a coffer dam is what you put up before building a real dam, and it kind of creates like a little segment of dry riverbed where you can start to build the the real dam. So oh, it's like a temporary dam that you put up first. That's cool. Oh, speaking of that, there's a cool Wikipedia video that's like a 3D animation of how they make dams that we can that we can put in the show notes. Related to the coffer dam, you know, is this uh, my my favorite term I think in dam building, which is the grout curtain. And it's actually like it's grout in the same sense that you have grout in your bathroom, uh, but it's obviously on, on a completely different scale. It's so just a idea... weird sounding phrase, grout curtain. Exactly. I, I think of it as like a uh, when, when I think of it, I imagine someone with like a pressurized hose of basically grout that you would get in a tube at Lowe's, just like spraying it like crazy all over the landscape. <laughs> um, and that actually maybe isn't that far off because the idea is that, you know, the dam is a big impermeable thing and it sits in a canyon, but the canyon may or may not be just as impermeable as the dam. Like if the if the canyon is is really good granite that goes, you know, for miles on either side, then it's pretty easy. But if you're building a dam on really porous, you know, volcanic soil, you have to make sure that the water isn't just going to go through the soil and through the walls of the canyon and seep around the dam and then open up into a torrent and flood the whole thing away, which is, in fact, exactly what happened to a big dam called the Teton Dam in Idaho uh, back in 1976. So what what happened? Uh, well, they they poured a giant grout curtain around the dam, but it evidently didn't go far enough into the surrounding landscape, which was made up of really, really porous soil. And so water started to seep around the dam. And once that happens, it begins to you know, undermine the foundations of the dam and eventually just burst through, washed the whole thing downstream. Oh, it was so. a big catastrophe. It's it's held up as an example of um, all of the good dam sites having been taken already. Because yeah. this was uh, not a favorable location for a dam from the beginning, in part because of the, the nature of the soil and, and, and rock around it that made it difficult to, you know, to seal the dam off with a grout curtain. So mm. grout curtains, they... Um, keep you alive most of the time with the exception of the Teton Dam. 
Yeah. Uh, cool. So, what have you been? What have you been thinking about this week that may or may not be work related? Well, I've been looking at fasteners. I was procrastinating a bit on some home improvement, and rather than actually conducting the home improvement, I decided to look up certain aspects of the home improvement on Wikipedia. Oh yes. And uh, one of this, <laughs> exactly. It's uh, um, some of my best click spirals have happened this way. Uh, so there's a there's a great article on Wikipedia called List of Screw Drives. And it's basically an overview of um, a dozen or so of the most popular screwdrives, though it's it's worth noting that after probably the four most popular screwdrives, they get awfully obscure. I'm looking at the hexalobular socket right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see those oh, all over the place. Torx, yeah. Radio Star Shack, drive. don't you? Yeah. yeah. So the, the takeaway, though, that I was interested in is that there, there are several different screw heads and screwdrivers that I would casually call Phillips head, but that are not, in fact, Phillips head. Oh, interesting. So the Phillips is is just one of several popular cross-shaped um, screwdrives. It's distinguished from earlier versions by the fact that it's slightly wider at the center of the cross, um, which is supposed to help prevent, um, you know, torquing out and, and stripping the screw. The idea is that, you know, you want to even out the, the application of pressure on the fins rather than having all of the torque get applied to sort of the you know, the, the, the sharpened tip at the center. But it's, it's, it's remarkably difficult to perfect this as evidenced by the variety of these um, cruciform type screwdrives that are available. So there's, uh, there's one called the Frierson that looks awfully similar. This is one that apparently you do find fairly commonly. And if you use a, a Phillips head screwdriver in it or a Frierson screwdriver in a Phillips head screw, you have a good chance of stripping it, but it will probably work. So maybe you never know. Hmm. And then there's something called the Paza drive, which is another trademarked uh, screw head type um, that, that looks really similar to a, uh, oh, to a Phillips head. It's spelled P-O-Z-I-D-R-I-V. They clearly named it during the era when that kind of like abbreviation was really swank. Yeah. It's like the dot L-Y of, of whenever that was. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's it's distinguished, and, and you might recognize this, by a kind of a, a light X-shape mark on the screw head uh, right next to the opening for the screwdriver. I have seen this on screw heads, but it never occurred to me that that was warning me that it's not actually a Phillips head screw, that I need a Paza drive screwdriver for Driver it. for it. Yeah. And then, of course, there's a fun variety of other other stuff that's meant to be tamper proof. You've probably seen this in like uh, the bathroom stall. One bathroom way stalls. Ones. The one yeah, way ones. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. These are cool. Yeah. The one way one is the is the one like really clever one that obviously presents an impediment to someone looking to tamper with a screw. The other ones are pretty much uh, secure by obscurity. You're just not likely if you are a, uh, a bathroom stall vandal, you know, to have a pentalobe screwdriver yeah. or a um protruding obstacle type screwdriver right <laughs> or a spline screwdriver or a torque set screwdriver or whatever i i like the one-way screws there it's an incredibly clever design for what it wants to be yeah so how do we how do we even describe this you can only turn it one way just look at the picture we're going to put in the show notes it's really worth it <laughs> yeah it has like a um, gradient yeah it so has you a can gradient. turn it clockwise but if you try to turn it counterclockwise your screw pulls out your screwdriver pulls out and apparently you have to have, uh, yeah, I guess you have to have a special tool to take it out. Um, um, or if you are like my old apartment building super in New York, you just come in with a drill right. and uh, yeah, yeah. pound away at it for a really long time. And just drill out the middle. Yeah, yep. yeah. So that brings us to the end of this week's Click Spiral. If you have a Click Spiral that you'd like to inflict on David and me, just email it to hardware at O'Reilly.com and we'll get your note and... Uh, 
take a look and maybe we'll talk about it on a future episode of the show. It'll be great. For links and other information related to this week's episode, visit O'Reilly.com slash hardware and send your questions and comments to hardware at O'Reilly.com. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you've subscribed on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite podcasting platform. And if you really enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review. Until next time, I'm David Crane. And I'm John Bruner. <laughs>